I'm Andrew Murata, host of the Education Leadership and Beyond podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you are listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Colonel William Wall and Dr. Tim Moss, and they're sharing with us their book for assisting combat veterans and their families. It's called Complexities and Challenges, Clinical Perspectives in Combat Veteran Treatment and the Unique Needs of Military and Veteran Families. What an awesome, powerful book. It'll provide combat veterans and their family support for addressing those so many challenges they may be facing as they return to the civilian world. You're going to learn so, so very much today. Thanks for listening. And by the way, before you go, it'd be so cool if you uh, shared Teaching Learning Leading K-12 with a friend, a family member, a neighbor, a, a colleague. What do you think? Hmm? Could you do that for me? That'd be so cool. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Enjoy the show. It's the education podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dot Stimoletto. Lieutenant Colonel Retired William Wall is a combat veteran and CEO for the Center for Life, Stress, and Psychotherapy. He is a 30-year veteran of the Air Force and Army and an internationally recognized leader in the field of disaster and military-related clinical trauma. During his Air Force career, he served as the Mental Health Deputy Flight Commander at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and the Chief of Behavioral Health for Air Force Material Command. He was deployed in 2004-2005 as a combat stress team commander for Operation Iraqi Freedom and learned firsthand the dynamics of combat stress and its relation to PTSD. He served as Social Work Ambulatory Programs Coordinator and Manager for the Freedom Center, the Dayton VA's Medical Center, Operation Enduring Freedom, and Operation Iraqi Freedom Post-Deployment Clinic from 2007 to 2017. He holds a master's degree from Our Lady of the Lake University and is board-certified licensed clinical social worker trauma therapist. He serves as a mental health team member and former clinical director for the Southwest Ohio Critical Incident Stress Team. He is currently an adjunct instructor at Wright State University and lectures nationally on the subjects of mental health, trauma recovery, organizational leadership, and development. Dr. Timothy Moss is a decorated combat veteran, author, psychotherapist, leadership consultant, motivational speaker, and CEO of Breakthrough Leadership Consulting. He is a veteran of the Air Force and Army and an internationally recognized leader in the field of behavioral health and military-related clinical trauma. During his Air Force career, he served as a senior mental health and family advocacy officer. He served as combat psychotherapist and clinical traumologist for the Freedom Center, Dayton VA's Medical Center, Operation Enduring Freedom, and Operation Iraqi Freedom post-deployment clinic from 2008 to 2017. Dr. Moss holds a Master of Science degree from the Ivy League Columbia University, New York, and a Doctorate of Counseling from Logos University. He is a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives and board-certified expert in traumatic stress. He is the past president and chairman of the board, National Association of Social Workers, Ohio chapter, and uh, served as an adjunct professor at St. Leo University. He is the author of Clear Vision in a Dark Place and Can I Just Have Jesus? He lectures nationally on the subjects of organizational leadership and development, mental health, trauma recovery, spirituality, and community development. We're focused today on their book, Complexities and Challenges, Clinical Perspectives in Combat Veteran Treatment and Unique Needs of Military and Veteran Families. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. 
It's a pleasure to be here, Stu, and thank you for your service to our country as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you both, and thank you both for your service to our country, and I appreciate it. The, uh, this, is, this is awesome talking with you. And so everyone knows, uh, we're now going to refer to uh, a little more informal names. So uh, Dr. Moss is now Tim, and uh, Colonel Wall is now Bill. So uh, um, we're glad that you guys are with us today. And uh, gentlemen, like we said, this is, um, it's amazing, uh, the service that you've uh, um, given to your country and to uh, your fellow veterans and so forth. And I, I can't thank you enough for that. And, and the first thing I want to talk with you about is your decision to serve in the military. Can you talk about, I mean, what encouraged you to step forward and raise your right hand? I'm used to the colonel going first, so I typically come after you. <laughs> Say, you're going to go first? No, I was going to say, I always defer to you, the oh, colonel, okay. Okay. colonel before the captain. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so kind of what encouraged me to step forward, um, when I think about being in the, so a couple things, I was in, the, I was in college from uh, 1969 to 1973, I went to college at Case Western Reserve University. Um, I was actually an engineering major, which is really kind of odd looking back. Um, but um, probably one of the biggest motivations was my older brother, Terry, who was a, is a Vietnam vet. And he was drafted. And what was odd was amidst all of the demonstrations going on, um, it was kind of uh, almost surreal in the sense of, you know, watching this go on and kind of participating. But you know, I was much more concerned about kind of the idea about skin in the game. My brother's over there. We're hearing about people that are, are dying and so on and so forth. And then over the course of um, his tour in Vietnam and my college education, um, by my sophomore year, um, sophomore and junior year, by 70, 71, um, we started hearing about Vietnam vets coming back. And so suddenly in the midst of the demonstrations that were mostly college students, um, you had um, veterans that had been in Vietnam, had survived. And really what I started hearing was um, different things about their experience and also the lack of um, mental health services for them. That was kind of a key factor. And I changed my major from engineering the kind of pre-med, I was really a psychology, sociology major, but I was really fascinated with kind of what was going on. Keeping in mind by the end of um, Vietnam, we didn't have um, a diagnosis called PTSD, right? So um, a lot of the dynamics of what was going on there um, was really one of the things that, um, that kind of led me to that. And then um, fast, not fast forward, but throughout that time, my brother made it back okay. He was a Marine, um, and he had some symptoms, but I think there was always this thing stuck in my head about um, veterans were kind of coined in reference to the VA's response back then um, about if you came back from Vietnam and you're having problems, it must be because you have a personality disorder or you're a drug addict. And that just made no freaking sense at all to me. Because I can see my brother, he came back and he um, worked his way. He became an executive with Eastern Airlines and, and he was doing relatively well. So there was kind of a, a disconnect between that. Um, and so that kind of spurred my interest. It was almost a shift from um, looking at engineering and how do you make objects fly to the much, much more complex dynamic of mental health and how are people 
how does pathology get established? How do you treat it and things like that? Um, and so um, when it was time to raise my hand and come in, um, there were certainly things like um, GI Bill for, you know, further education. Um, but I really had made a decision and I'd been working as a highway construction engineer and it was like that fork in the road. I need to decide which way do I want to go and the pathway towards becoming initially in the Army, a mental health technician, um, later a mental health instructor at the Academy of Health Sciences in Fort Sam to getting a master's degree, getting commissioned in the Air Force and being a mental health officer, all were kind of answering some of those um, kind of burning questions about how does this work? And uh, that kind of led to an interest in veteran health to include veteran mental health and also kind of first responder health because early in my career, um, I started working closely with law enforcement and things like that. But those are the dynamics that kind of led me to raise my hand. Thank you. That's awesome. The, uh, and I appreciate you sharing. Mm-hmm. And um, Tim, how about you? Um, I've got um, a storied history um, from my grandfather um, just in the civil rights era and just really the push to um, serve. And so I've got an uncle who's um, served in Vietnam as well, kind of like uh, Bill's brother. Um, who had three Purple Hearts, and, you know, you just kind of just go kind of through it. And so when he came home, my grandmother would actually tell us, be careful how you address him and how you touch him, because he would wake up fighting. So she would actually tell stories about how when he got back, she would use a broom handle to tack him on the bottom of his feet to get him to wake up without, because he, he would come up um, thinking he's in battle and come up fighting. Um, and so that kind of put some questions for me and kind of led that path for me, similar to Bill, um, that, you know, created that evolution in terms of, how do I help my uncle and then translate it? And that translated to, well, how do I help people who have this similar concerns or who were kind of thrust into a, a war? And now how do we help them now that they're back? We appreciate their service. But, you know, the experience that, that the Vietnam era veterans um, got is primarily, and I would say, you know, primary, the primary reason why the OEF centers exist today is to make sure that there's no wrong door to come in when you exit the military and enter the doors of the VA, and more importantly, how to address that. And so for me, it was really kind of a full circle by helping my uncle and learning information and services and treatment for him. It really kind of set the stage that kind of, you know, redirected my path in terms of joining. I joined for the Army College Fund because I knew I wanted to go to college, but it was a really a way of uh, getting into a system that would both address college issues and ultimately would get me in a path where I would actually end up working in mental health and being able to um, not only just kind of help veterans nationally, but to help my uncle as well. That is excellent. Th- thank you both for sharing. And, uh, and once again, thank you both for uh, stepping forward and raising the right hand and, and then doing all the cool things that you've done, because this is such an important uh, topic that we're going to be talking about here in a minute. And you've written an incredible book about it. And, and uh, so kudos to you. The, uh, um, and just a note, I, you know, I always wonder, I look back cause I, my, one of my grandfathers was uh, a world war two vet who he was in the tanks going across um, to Berlin to oh, yeah. uh, to end uh, that part of the war, and um, he, you know, there were a lot of times where he slept a lot and things like that. And I always wonder if you know there's things that I probably missed <laughs> um, that he did that may have been uh, that he was a funny guy, so <laughs> that may have been it too. It may just, <laughs> he, he may have been um, his wife may have been discouraging that part of his behaviors. I don't know, but uh. it's, it's really kind of an interesting thing about that group of veterans, the world war two vets. Um, 
because they came back in a different way. They came back all together. So they had some time to decompress and kind of figure out what to talk about and what not to talk about. And um, so, and again, we, we had um, battle fatigue and a bunch of kind of nebulous terms for them. But one of the things that was significant as, as Tim and I worked in the Freedom Center with the other war groups, um, one of the one of the things that we started to notice is a lot of the World War II vets, um, they just decided to be quiet about it. And so very often it would be, I don't know how many times I heard this experience from a family member talking about a grandpa typically. Um, and what they would say is, um, someone, he, they, they would ask him questions about the war because they knew he or she was there. Um, and, and typically they hadn't talked about it. And often in some of that life review, um, they might talk about it. And then you'd hear people say, he never talked about that. And they talk about some of their experiences of the horrors of war, like driving in tanks or things like that, that they just, they just stuffed it. You know, and and they dealt with it differently. Um, some used substances, you know, but um, for the most part, they kind of looked at it like something to just that was then. This is now, and they had GI bills and things like that to help and economic supports and and get on with family. So they didn't really talk about it a lot, but it wasn't because it wasn't there. Gotcha. That that's pretty much what the experience at me as a little kid. I was mm-hmm. his, I was his buddy and kind of. Followed him wherever he went, and uh, um, but he he was someone who I started picking up an interest in, and I would ask, but he really did not talk about it, and he would not. He just uh, he'd share a few things, and um, and the funniest story that I have is what he would share things like that. He wouldn't talk about the actual fighting and stuff like that, and and uh, he was uh, just just as a note, he was a tech sergeant who uh, was in command of this. You know, it, you know, worked with the commanders in these tanks and all this stuff, and they were in some area in, in uh, on their way to Berlin, and uh, a fight broke out, and he gets involved in the fight, and I guess wherever the MPs came from, <laughs> um, he ends up trying to protect his own men from the from the MPs. And so he gets in a battle with them. And so it's a funny story because he shared this with, me. he said, I gotta tell you about the time I got busted to private <laughs> in the middle of a war. <laughs> he said, so they busted him to private in the middle of war because he hit one or two of the MPs to get them off. And, uh, and, uh, then a month later they gave him back his, uh, gave him stripes back. they gave him his stripes back and then put him back in, uh, in the tank where he was supposed to be. And so it was a f- funny story. I have those letters that are kind of cool where he sends the, the eventually the, the tech sergeant comes forward. That's that those patches, and then eventually he sends back the private. <laughs> He's like, I got my other patches back. So, <laughs> but it's a that's an interesting thing. In the middle of a war, he's being <laughs> punished because he broke up a fight. So, uh, yeah, there were jokes about folks they should put their stripes on with Velcro. They didn't have Velcro back then. No, they put them on with Velcro because they keep getting them busted and taking them off, and that's an easier way to do it. And then they'd reinstate them and patch them back on. That would have been a lot easier. Yes, definitely. But you can see where they they were hand stitched or something because what oh, yeah. he did. I can only imagine what it looked oh, like. So. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, all right. So at the beginning of your book, you have this quotation: "A veteran is someone who, at one point in their life, wrote a blank check made payable to the United States of America for an amount of." up to and including their life. Um, you list this as, as an anonymous quotation. Um, could you talk about what this means and why you included it in the beginning of your book? Sure, you go ahead, Tim. 
Okay. Well, Steve, I, uh, we put that there because one, we want to acknowledge the, um, when you think about the American population, um, at any given time, there's usually only between three to 5% of veterans in the military. So we think about, we think that's a large number, but when you look at the overall population, it's that not that many people that actually raise their hand to serve and what they're actually doing, which is, I think is very powerful as it relates to helping in their recovery is that oftentimes we think of, I'm just, you know, a stone maker and I'm helping build stones or I'm helping build a cathedral. Well, they are literally by their very lives and by their very signature, they are putting their life on the line. Should the military need them to go to battle? And for many that did not serve, it's still the same because we still have those same missions abroad in terms of national disaster response that we're putting our lives in danger, much like a firefighter going into a firefight. So I really elevate their services to get them to see that because oftentimes we just see that I just served with my troops. I went over with my buddies. I I was there because my buddy was there, but really to put it in proper context that helps them to begin the process of healing is to really get them to think that one, there's only three to 5% that are are veterans at any given time in our country. And out of that three to 5%, uh, 0.45% are combat veterans. So it's a very um, small academy um, when you start with that. And the fact that they serve, and so I let them know from the start that I'm dealing with someone who stepped forward at the highest level of our federal government to give their service. And so you are, the VA calls them entitlements. So you're not begging, you're not asking something, you're asking something that you're entitled to. And so by them hearing that, it changes the, the dynamic of um, what was me or my service that no one will recognize. Um, because sometimes, because we did this, uh, so many valiant things in war, uh, they don't get acknowledged sometimes, so there's no archon for them or no medal that they can wear um, short of the Purple Heart. But th- it really sets the trajectory for them that I can see light at the end of the tunnel, and it is not a freight train coming at me. And I think that kind of highlights that for them. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, uh- I'd only share, I mean, I echo what, what Tim says. I, I think that um, in, in working with combat vets in particular, um, the the idea is it really speaks to back to that small number. And I sometimes will tell folks, you know, if you took a hundred people, um, you're going to need more, let's say 400 people. Um, and you have maybe 1%, right. Um, you only have four out of that 400 that actually are now in the military. Um, one quarter of those. So one out of that four actually goes to a combat environment. And it's one thing in peacetime, you know, so I came in in, 1976, um, we're at the end of Vietnam, um, but throughout my career, there are some skirmishes and things like that, um, and I had a sergeant tell me in the Army, you know, if you serve 20 years, uh, you're probably going to go to war and have to kill somebody, and it's like, what? Um, and the backside of that is someone's going to be trying to kill you, and and very often, that became some of the um, discussion um, with our vets around how unique it is. So um, kind of like we we're talking about our World War II vets, Vietnam vets, when you have such a small number that have an experience, then who do you share it with, right? You could stand in an audience of 400 people as a veteran that had to kill someone in Fallujah, Iraq, and or experience your buddies being killed, things like that. But it's kind of like, well, who do you talk to? Because you don't have that idea about shared experience well, you do, but it's with very little people. And one of the things when I think about that with our Iraq, Afghanistan vets coming back, um, our active duty folks come back to active duty service. So they're back with their, quote, community of others that have served. 
Um, but think about our National Guard and Reservists who are distributed out through the United States. But when they come back, they go through about a 10-day, if you will, um, demobilization. And then they go back to being teachers and bankers and, you know, workers in our communities, et cetera. And who do they share with? And so that that unique signature on the check to include your life, um, to me, speaks to um, the the really small amount of people that share that have that shared experience. And it was always fascinating because I think at, there was a time where Tim had that up in his office. And every now and then he'd be out of the office. Someone would come in. My office was right next to him, and I'd go check out who it was. And I'd see them kind of standing there reading that and just kind of um, – I, I remember one, I said, what do you think about that? And he looked at me, you know, cause you know, he looked at me and he says, well, you, he says, well, you and Tim know, <laughs> I, said, <laughs> yeah, <we do. laughs> I said, yeah, we do. Which is kind of a unique perspective because again, within that small number, um, there's a lot of therapists that weren't active combatants either in Gulf war one or Gulf war, you know, the Iraq Afghanistan war. Um, but that, that, um, that blank check, you know, that we signed voluntarily um, really speaks to uh, not only the number, but the commitment, like Tim had said about, you know, um, what else do you do that you would give your life for someone else because the government asked you to do this? And that's the uniqueness of that statement. Very much so. Um, well, oh, I appreciate you both sharing that. And that's, uh, that's very powerful. And I can imagine having someone taking a look at it, uh, you know, if they're, you know, just as they're reading it, what might they be thinking? So, uh, sure. yeah, it's very thought provoking. So thank you. Uh, you know, so I got to ask, what inspired you to create your book, Complexities and Challenges, Clinical Perspectives in Combat Veteran Treatment and Unique Needs of Military and Veteran Families? I mean, what, what made you say, this needs to be a book and we need to get it done? Well, I'll, I'll go first on that one. So, um, I had a presentation that was coming up. I think it was to possibly the National Association of Social Work. Um, and I think at the time, Tim was the president for the NASW Ohio. And he asked me, he said, Bill, can you do a presentation for uh, one of our social work conferences? And I was kind of working on it. And I was I was just kind of thinking out loud, I guess, at our officer right next door so we could visit pretty easily. Um, plus, we had spent time active due together. So we, we know each other really well. And um and Tim said, well, what do you think about complexities and challenges? And I said, ah, oh, man, that captures that perfectly. And so um, the lecture, which was um, similar in the sense of the kind of work that we were doing at the Dayton um, VA and the Freedom Center, um, was to understand the complexities of um, not only just, I mean, if you pick any one of them, post-traumatic stress is an extraordinarily um, complex kind of situation. Um, if you've had a trauma and you look now at various data that might say, um, well, you can look at data that talks about adverse childhood events, ACEs, um, from a, a study that was done back in the 70s. Um, that's a good lead in. But um, again, you don't just kind of show up in the military. You have your history as well. So the idea about complexities, um, in my mind, spoke to um, how dynamic this is. So kind of back to engineering. You know, you can put thrust on a chair and it'll fly. Put a tail, some wings, you're good to go. It'll fly, it might crash, but you're good to go. But a, a person in terms of the complexities that they have are extraordinarily um, different than that. 
Um, and so complexities, when you think about one condition like PTSD, um, another condition like chronic pain, um, blast injuries, and again, these happen with veterans and, and civilians as well, um, substance abuse in terms of how that gets established, um, or even partner relationship, because, you know, we think about those four live at home, so that's kind of where partner relationship comes in. Um, but the complexities of it speaks then to the challenges of how do you have a dialogue, um, therapeutic communication with somebody to build trust and things like that in such a way that, um, in such a way that you can um, effectively help a person heal and move from the trauma impacts of that kind of service in a combat environment to healthy, thriving, um, living again. And so that, that title um, spoke volumes to me. And so um, for me, just about any other lecture that I wrote for, um, whether it be a community organization, uh, many of the lectures that I have at Wright State, same lead-in, um, started to build this archive of complexities and challenges, um, coping with stress as a student, complexities and challenges, um, dealing, dealing with um, veteran health care. Um, became kind of a, for me, it's just been one of those titles that for just captures um, the dynamics of what we're trying to approach. Um, because so often, and we can be, you know, in our bios, we talk about being a traumatologist. Well, um, you can be a cognitive behavioral therapist. You can be a prolonged exposure therapist. You can be a, a therapist based on the model. Um, but the complexity problem and the challenges is that what do you do when it doesn't work? because you have to kind of pivot and try and use something else. Um, and some folks don't do that. And the cost of that is a veteran will drop out of care, uh, law enforcement will drop out of care, fire will drop out of care, because the challenge is how do we, um, the complexities are what you bring to us. Um, the challenges are what we need to bring to the table in terms of providing some context of safety and trust, um, esteem building, a sense of control. We need to re revisit that. Um, and connection. I think that's a huge part. So that title, like I said, um, from when Tim first kind of said, hey, what do you think about this, um, has just grown um, over the years to probably more than 100 or so lectures um, that at one point, a couple of years ago, Tim kind of called and said, hey, what do you think about putting these together, which is really kind of what um, was the start of the book. And so um Little known, you know, often you know, like Tim will say, well, you're the colonel, I'm the captain, so you go first. But, you know, one of the things that I thought about as far as why he's the first author in the book is that it was, you know, his initiative, I think, to say, let's let's try and do this. I said, let's go. So, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Did, Tim, do you want to add anything else to that? Uh, sure. I think um, one of the things that at, uh, on the corner wall I was able to do at the Dayton VA was to run out the first inaugural uh, combat veterans group, typically in the VA system, because there are uh, so many challenges there in terms of how you provide service. You could have someone in a group, uh, all of them have the diagnosis of PTSD. One might be from military sexual trauma. One might be for a car accident that they were after basic training and before they got to AIT or permanent party, they were hit on a bus and they've got trauma from that, um, as well as those combat veterans. And as we know, there's kind of particular slant with uh, how you address all of those. But one of the things that the literature kind of pretty much says is that if you put um, folks based on just a diagnosis in the same group, it's kind of hard to work through it because the 
issues are so vastly different. Um, a combat veteran um, is going to say to someone who uh, got injured in a hospital setting or in a car setting, um, that's typical. I, but I got blown up. And so part of pieces was to start a group specific to combat veterans. And since that was under the mantra of uh, us as combat veterans and the Freedom Center. So we created that, as you might imagine, that created some whirlwind there because now you're treating the combat veterans different from anyone who served with that. But part of the piece is because of the therapeutic nature of what we'd be dealing with, um, they need to feel a great affinity that uh, when, they, as they say in the military culture, when you look across the room, uh, they've had boots on ground, been there, done it, and got five t-shirts to prove it. So it's a proven uh, acumen that, oh, Tim and Bill, they've been there. But part of the challenge of the great work we did, um, and I Bill knows the numbers of terms of uh, folks that we saw in the clinic, but um, many of them now, um, because of a lot of the work that we've done in addressing both the family context of their um, uh, challenges coming back, is that many of them now have moved in positions where now they are unlike like us, whereas a trained professional, and I would kind of put my discipline out there, Steve, in the sense that part of us writing the book is typically a lot of the research that's done in VA systems or it's just around, done around the country is people who had family members that served and they wanted to give back. And so they did a lot of research either in clinical social work, psychology, to improve on how we address our veterans. Bill and I have a unique respect because in addition to being traumatologists, we are also combat veterans. So we have a, a, a more advanced on the grounds kind of version. So when we're talking to veterans, they, as they say, I get it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that helps the, the therapeutic process. And so for, um, for me, that piece is kind of getting them to see that. And by starting that group, they realize that one, this is a safe place and I can share my story. Um, and I think that was the genius of the group is putting them in an environment where they can share the story because that small number of only the one in four, but in that everyone in that room, when they look around the room, there's a combat patch to back up what the service that they've done. And that kind of set the stage for their recovery. Fast forward 10 years later, we've got these folks now in positions of authority, power, influence in the community. Many have now written books and they often refer when they give their lectures or talks around the country, if it weren't for the colonel and the captain, I wouldn't be here today. And so people are asking, well, who is this colonel and the captain? And they're like, hey, um, can you guys come and just show up? And I said, the bill, you know, with our active schedule, that's kind of hard. But if we take what we did with them, put it in a book, and I, I appreciate Bill sharing it earlier about because now when they read the book, like, yeah, this is what they taught us. And many times they would forget, but now they've got a book that addresses all of the five component areas and it helps them guide other veterans that we may never, ever reach. Mm -hmm. um, it uh, opens that door for them. And so I thought it was critical to one, kind of put a, a stitch in time in terms of the history piece of writing the book, but also, and more important, is really, uh, I value their service and we want something that creates a legacy that they, folks can refer back to and said, I think we did a pretty good, decent job. Excellent. Sure. I, I would only add to what Tim said, and it's kind of like that final part that, you know, as a, as a therapist, I'm kind of downstream, but I might see if I saw eight person a day, eight people in a day um, for four in the morning, four in the afternoon, um, that's a small number considering the two point, I think, eight million veterans. I mean, that we're trying to get that message out to, even if I see a group, um, I'm seeing a group of maybe 10 once a week. Um, that's a small number. And we hear all the time about how valuable this information has been for them in terms of, uh, or from their wife, their spouses, who sometimes would come to sessions and kind of hear it. And, and it's maybe the first time they'd heard that, or it's not some a modulized program because it's kind of tailored to them. Um, and we both are busy and we do presentations and things like that. And 
you know, depending on the class size, you know, fall semester, um, it's still a, a limited number. Um, but I think one of the things that I, I know when Tim and I met a few weeks ago um, is to be able to have that information that people have said has great value to them. And in a book, it distributes much more widely. And, um, and hearing, you know, so, you know, I'm back 17 years from 2005, but when we were doing that work from 2007 to 2017, many of them now are, are either running their own groups and they're using this information. So I think um, it, it's, it's really a neat way for that information, you know, like in education, we distribute it out by teaching others how to help themselves, but how to teach others how to help each other. So, yeah. Excellent. And thank, it really speaks to, I mean, it, think about uh, what you're doing and how it helps. So uh, I can't uh, I, I say enough about how this is, it's cool because when you read, read their book um, listeners, it's, it's one of those things where you really get kind of a, a better understanding and it's, it's written in such a way in which you will have a better understanding and uh, of what uh, um, a veteran is uh, dealing with, a combat veteran is dealing with as well as uh, what they're trying to do to help. So uh mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. You know, in your book, you refer to OEF, Operation Enduring Freedom, and OIF, Operation Iraqi Freedom, uh, veterans and, and their health concerns and challenges. Could you take a minute to share with us the types of challenges they are facing as their physical and mental health is concerned? And I know that's a big topic, <laughs> um, but could you talk a little bit about that? Do you want to go first or me? The Colonel. <laughs> okay. Um, so... So it's, it's really kind of a fascinating thing to, um, when I think about being at the Dayton VA Medical Center and uh, working with Guy Richards, and he was the director at the time, um, and I'm coming out of, uh, again, a career of looking at a lot of different dimensions of what's going on. And um, Guy Richardson, you know, when he hired me, he kind of said uh, something on the order in a metaphor um, I'm going to give you an orchestra talking about the um, clinicians that'll be in the clinic and, but you're the conductor. So you need to make some great music, that kind of thing. So as we're looking at what people are coming um, back, we have some, some clinic, they call them clinical reminders in the VA. So you're looking at um, things like um, traumatic brain injury. Um, you're looking at PTSD um, and some, and pain. Those were kind of the, the first three. But I think as we started to see the different things that were going on, and, and keep in mind, we're also being informed by our Vietnam vets, because our clinic is strictly the Iraq-Afghanistan vets. But in the VA, we get Vietnam vets that come in and go, hey, what's this clinic about? You know, and we tell them, um, oh, how come? And, and sometimes it would be, um, we should have had that when we got back. So we're glad that you have it. Or we'd get um, our Gulf War vets that would come in, and they're still dealing with uh, respiratory problems and things like that. So early on, you had a sense of like all these different um, things that were going on in healthcare. Some were mental health, some were physical health. Um, but the key became around um, kind of amplifying the screening conditions. And so um, we, we developed what we called the 10-step intake process in which what we were doing was um, we had our um, primary care doc would, they would do kind of the basics, making sure that um, your respiratory functioning, cardiac functioning, endocrine functioning, neurological functioning, things like that were basically good to go, 
right? And then in the Freedom Center, we would screen for um, TBI, the blast injury related things. But but TBI also, excuse me, blast injuries also um, resulted in visual problems, you know, um, because if you had any kind of ocular damage, it resulted in auditory problems. Um, because, you know, if you get an eardrum ruptured, there are different dynamics with that. Um, and so we would we would look for that. Um, PTSD, we would screen routinely for that. Um, we'd also look at chronic pain uh, because, again, um, on the active duty side, people coming in would very often be treated with opioids, which is a, not a bad initial acute treatment. Um, but by the time they're they're discharged, whether they're active duty or just coming off Title Ten if they're guard, um, now you got to figure out a transition. And so um, we didn't want to make the opioid situation worse, so we take a look at that, and um, and also ask specifically about substance abuse in terms of are you using alcohol and things like that um, more. So we started to notice that with a lot of the Iraq Afghanistan vets. Um, clearly, they didn't have substance dependence issues prior to um, coming in um, or going to deployment. Um, they had it afterwards, which was kind of unique. So that kind of set the stage for really just kind of a, a rubric around, does, was any of this stuff present before you left? Kind of that pre-deployment self, what happened during deployment, and what are we seeing in the post-deployment person, um, both in terms of mental and physical health? And finding out through the various screenings for these different conditions and even asking, how are you doing with your spouse? You know, I mean, if you were about to divorce before you left and you're about to divorce now, okay, well, that says things, but it's just going to get worse. And if we can do something to preserve the relationships, that's something that we need to do. So we found um, looking at the, the myriad of the healthcare conditions that they had, um, screening, and, and using our, our nurses and social work case managers, um, not only to screen and say, yes, you have this condition, and finding out where in the system we could refer them to. But I think the biggest um, thing that, um, that, that we experienced was follow-up, right? Because um, our case managers would follow them. And for me, it was, um, we're going to follow you weekly for about 90 days, you know, to, you know, anywhere from three to six months. And make sure that you're tracking all those appointments because it's easy for people to say, well, I didn't go to that appointment or what. But if you if you lose continuity, continuity of care, that's when conditions just become chronic and are harder to treat. Um, so I think just that, that kind of big question about, you know, what kind of things they were facing. For me, um, it was important to do the screening and assessment, um, take the findings from that screening and assessment and get them into the stream of care. Uh, for the relevant conditions that they had and following that follow-up um, and I think the follow-up was uh, I, probably one of the biggest things about the follow-up is that contributed to um, a sense of trust for us um, it reduced their frustration in the system because I would say to them routinely okay why don't you go to this appointment and if something happens or you're not happy with it come back you know don't just go home and never come back because that's what people will do they'll go out in the parking lot cuss and swear a whole bunch and then not come back. I want you, if you don't get any satisfaction in neurology, wherever you go, come back and see us. Um, and we would say that for, um, for veterans, not specific to gender, because a lot of the female vets would come back and um, they would have changes in their endocrine system. 
Um, they would have changes in their um, GYN functioning. Um, they would have um, sexual trauma. Uh, and again, for a while, um, they weren't calling military sexual trauma PTSD, which is what it was. Um, they would kind of make it seem as if it was some other nebulous thing, and we just need to call it what it is. And so um, Tim and I think, and I think other um, OEFOF programs really kind of, sh you know, shifted gears to make sure that um, we acknowledge that. But it was, um, it's, it's, a, it's a problem, I think, you know, so back to my engineering, it's a problem with a whole lot of variables, right? And so we got to figure out which variables are the most active ones, which ones are the lurking variables, work out the equation, and on the other side of the equal sign, making sure that people are getting in the stream of care and also moving forward in the goals that they have. Because, you know, um, just because you've got health problems and mental health problems, you know, our veterans, you know, like Tim and I, they went to, um, they came in and they wanted to get their GI Bill and go to college. Um, but they don't want to go to college and get triggered and then drop out. <laughs> You know, they want to go back and work and it's difficult to work if you're cussing, swearing at all your coworkers because they're triggering your PTSD or something like that. Or if you're a female and you go back to work and somebody, some guy says something stupid to you uh, that triggers a trauma experience there. So not only was it treating the conditions, but, you know, getting them towards, um, you know, kind of in the rubric of, of trauma, moving from being a survivor back to that idea about how do we get them to thrive again? not only in their relationships, but their occupational functioning as well. And I think that was what, that's maybe the beauty of what they felt like they got from us in, in terms of that exchange. Excellent. Um, this is, uh, you know, it's, uh, um, I, I just, you know, just any number of, what I hear you saying is that just any number of challenges can appear mm -hmm. and that you really kind of have to figure out what their combination is, I guess. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, what's, what's going on there, especially if they'll be, if they'll be cooperative. <laughs> it, well, it's funny because I know one of the, you know, your comment reminds me of uh, a spouse. So one of the vets was there was his first session we were talking and he said, well, can my wife come with me the next time? I said, sure. Because, you know, we need to, you know, if they want to be included, talk to them about what's going on. So they know. And at the end of the session, I said to her, I said, so was this, was this session helpful to you? And she said, well, yeah. And I said, well, how was it helpful to you? And she says, well, um, now I know um, what part of what's going on with him is PTSD. And I also know what part of what's going on with him is him just being an asshole. <laughs> and I, I did the same thing. I started laughing and I thought, well, okay, I guess that's cool. You know, cause that's what you need to know is that you don't want to be reactive to the PTSD. And, and if you are, you want to be helpful and nurturing, but the asshole part, yeah, that's yours. Yes. Not what we treat, you know, making kinder and better, but okay. You know, so I thought that was fascinating, you know, way to understand what works. That really is. That really is. It's, uh, and I kind of imagine it had a little shock value to you, too, the first time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, we're on to something with this partner relational thing. Yes. <laughs> Tim, is there anything that you wanted to add to the to that? Or I think that was great, his, his uh, overview. Um, I The piece that we always know, and again, that I know it, kind of anecdotally and uh, the lived experiences, remembering my grandmother um, having to tap her own son at, I think he was 19, he came back with her broomstick. And so it really speaks to that partner relational piece. And uh, the veterans will oftentimes say, hey, I don't wanna talk about this around, around my spouse. I'm like, 
But when you are having nightmares and you're kicking and fighting in your sleep, who do you think you're kicking? Who's seeing that? So she's already aware that there's something going on. She just may not know what it is or he may not know what it is. And so they kind of open the door, as Bill was saying, when we include the family, because oftentimes, as you said about your grandfather, if they're sleeping during the day, if you got up at two in the morning to go use the bathroom, you probably saw them not sleeping. So oftentimes when they were sleeping in the day, it wasn't because they um, just had insomnia. The, most of them were very afraid of the night, what we call the, the night terrors and just the things that mind would play tricks on them. And so for them, they would stay all night long, you know, 20, 30 years post their experience. And many family members would never even make a connection that they're sleeping a lot. I wonder why that is. If you happen to get up in the middle of the night or you have a shift work where you work through the night and you just happen to stop by the house and see the, all some of the lights on, that would explain they um, don't want to deal with that um, information or that, that trauma piece. And so they either stay up or they, um, you know, engage in substance abuse to you know, get drunk and then go to sleep because it kind of serves the same function. But part of the piece is family members were very acute in saying, what are some of the other presentations that was helpful to us in getting a very good assessment? Thank you both. It, uh, this is a powerful conversation here. I, you know, one of the things, uh, before I ask my next question, I wanted to, you know, it's something, um, uh, Bill, earlier you were talking a little bit about Vietnam vets, and there's a famous picture that when I read your book that comes to mind, even though it's it's more about the the Iraqi uh, um, wars and so forth, The uh, um, of and I believe he was like the last POW at least at that time oh. to be released mm-hmm. where his daughter's running across the tarmac mm-hmm. to give him a hug. Yep. And wow. one of the things that, that always, as I'm reading, I th- and I was thinking about that image um, because, you know, one of the things that you deal with is the stresses associated with returning to the civilian world. And, you know, I, I, that picture comes to mind because, you know, they're happy to be reunited, but at the same time, I mean, <laughs> what may have been part of the world that uh, they also had to deal with or contend with as after having been, you know, part of a prison of war uh, oh, yeah. camp and uh, for a long time and then be separated. And then you're suddenly brought back together again. And then on top of that, to return to some sort of something in the world. Um, yes. And I just wondering if you could kind of talk to that, not, not so much the, the picture as the, as the events that you've just, you know, run into as you're trying to help veterans, combat veterans. I think one of the things I would say, Steve, is most folks either, whether they learned about it in high school, typically where you learn about it, um, if not, certainly we learned about it in college, uh, a psychologist by the name of Abraham Maslow. So many of us are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I share this with veterans and they kind of get it. And I always talk about how the whole physiological needs, you know, food, water, shelter, typically those are accomplished by your mom and dad. So you kind of get that, you know, as long as you go out and play, eat, come back. Uh, typically then you get to your safety needs, but now you feel safe in the world. I feel safe. I can jump off that trampoline because I'm pretty much, I can handle this. I'm, I may hit the ground I'm from, on my feet. I do good, but you're going progressing through his hierarchy of needs, love and acceptance and belonging. So now you're probably in high school and you got your first girlfriend, first boyfriend, you're learning how to act and appropriately in relationships and then self-esteem needs. So now you've actually been good at what you do. You're probably in college now. You're probably in the military now and your self-esteem is tied to that, um, uh, buddy aid that I'm going to be good at my job so that we can um, be uh, dominant in, in battle or in just our training. And so you've gone through all of these needs issues. So now you have self-esteem. Part of the challenges when you see the uh, POW on the tarmac is that he's coming back. But when you think before he went, 
he was probably at self-actualization or certainly at the, it seemed he's done this. He's got a purple heart. You know, he's um, got all these awards and decorations, but here's the challenge. What I, and they kind of get it when I share it this way, you've gone through all of these high of needs, you hit self-esteem and then now you come back and you can't sleep because you're fearful of the night terrors. You are having flashbacks. You're having dreams. You're having um, throughout the day. Um, you can see a, pothole but in your mind we knew in driving in you know, Iraq and Afghanistan you don't go over potholes because that could be <laughs> an ID so you go around them so now the cop pulls you over because you went around a pothole versus driving over it like most of beings. The challenge I would say to them is that part of the thing that's helpful for them to realize is that physiologically in your mind you're still at this self-esteem because you've been valued in war but psychologically you're back all the way back down to safety needs. You know, you're not sure, did I lock all the doors? Is the house safe? You know, someone kind of break in and try to hurt me and my family. So you're psychologically advanced in terms of your ability to care for your family, but it's retrograde in terms of, of safety. Well, typically by the time, you know, we were just, you know, you're probably seven, eight years old, you'd leave your bicycle outside. That same bicycle outside is now a challenge for that veteran because they're wanting to is that going to be the uh, curse, uh, precursor or someone will break into my house? So you psychologically go from self-esteem needs to a high level of function. Now you're back down to, can I trust my body? Can I trust my mind? Can I trust my emotions? And so for them, they kind of get it. That's part of, I think, the psychological challenges. How am I so valued in war? But I'm crying because my daughter just you know, graduated preschool. And that lack of control is really, I'm trying to adjust and which back to the title, the complexities and the challenges. I love my daughter and I thought because I wanted to come back home, she kept me alive. But sometimes that may or may not be enough when the, the kid that you love so much is seeing that there is a, a dark side to how you survive. And that's the, the powerful story that they're not ready to share with family, but they oftentimes are ready to share with the Colonel and I. Absolutely. Gotcha. That's uh, it. Uh, and and it's, it's got to, to be able to open up has to be a powerful thing. And um, to be able to talk about those things, you know, I would think would be um, powerful in itself to have uh, to be able to even talk with you about uh, what they're experiencing, to be able to put it in words, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So the, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, um, you note and you talked to, you touched on a little bit of this um, in complexities and challenges. You note this female veterans usually experience a higher burden of medical illness, earlier psychological morbidity, and and uh, worse quality of life outcomes than do male military personnel who are exposed to the same levels of stressors and trauma. Could you share a little bit more about this? Sure, I'll, I'll go first. Um, one of the things that happens is that I mean, in the in the broader context, um, a combat deployment. I mean, there's there's being in the the military, right? Um, we're at a point where we actually have joint boot camp training. So men and women are training together in boot camp. In the last several years, uh, that's relatively new. But in a combat deployment, um, a combat deployment is, I, I would, um, I'm not sure who I'm quoting, but I've heard it said is a hyper-masculine environment, right? And so in that environment, um, women, um, are physiologically challenged and psychologically challenged differently. On the physiological level, if you're a, um, um, a transportation person or a mechanic that's part of a transportation company, 
um, you're driving long, long distances. And so early in the in the event in the in the wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan, something as simple as where do you pee and when um, is a challenge. Well, um, most people know that um, for women, if you don't uh, if you don't pee as frequently as you know as you need to, um, you run the risk of urinary tract infection, right? And so um, it took a lot of time to figure out. And again, to stop sometimes is, is life-threatening. So, you know, you make the choice. Um, things like um, going to the restroom. Um, when I was deployed, you always were with your battle buddy. And the reason women were with their battle buddy on the psychological side is if you go to the latrines, even though they're supposedly Cadillac latrines, that just means there's six of them in a row and a shower attached. Um, but but there often were men lurking, you know, standing on top of the, on the toilet. So you can't see it when you look in um, and women were getting assaulted. Um, we had units, again, our team um, as a combat stress team would go to a small unit or a forward operating base. And there were, there were things like lotteries where the guys would figure out which of the women were um, single and see, or, or married. There were two versions of it and figure out which one could sleep with the unmarried one or the married one first. And again, it sounds like kind of an interesting challenge, if you will, but what that does is that totally disrupts unit integrity and trust. If I can't trust that when you're coming to me, it's for a legitimate reason, and you're just really trying to get in my pants, that's something else, um, that just totally disrupts that. And it feels like betrayal. And so you have this disruption of trust and betrayal and safety along dimensions that were normal in a non-combat environment. Um, other things such as being able to take care of hygiene requirements um, were there. Again, the, the level of um, threat load um, was one of those things that for females, you know, they'd come back and suddenly start having thyroid problems. And you wonder, well, why, what's going on with that? And um, kind of the explanation from endocrinology was that you're, you know, you're, you're, system is used to threat and fight flight and then settle down, you know, kind of come back to calm, but that's not that environment. And both men and women um, experience that differently. Um, but for females, um, that was there. Um, one of the things that we noticed, um, a female has three kids at home, deploys. Um, while she's deployed, she's paying attention to her taking care of her own um, food go to the dining facility, the defect, and eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, um, wash your own laundry, things like that. And one, one um, lady and one female in um, one of the military culture um, videos that we use described forgetting her, um, she used her domestication skills. And she was home from deployment and the kids were running around kind of waiting for mommy to make something for them to eat. And she's thinking about herself and just as, you know, just they're not in the picture. Um, same like laundry, went and did her laundry and her husband had done, had had while she was gone. Now the expectation changes. Um, so they're much more um, at risk of those kind of stressors um, impacting their family functioning. And women also, you have women that are coming back from deployment at higher risk of divorce, um, actually at higher risk of homelessness, interestingly. Um, not to mention a lot of the physiological conditions that are there. And so, um, and, and, you know, the other piece to it was that, you know, the um, stories about women aren't in combat roles. Um, well, that's that, you know, they might not be point of the spear combat roles, but 
if you have a female truck driver or their truck driver on the outbound, um, it might be if it's a male female team on the outbound, um, the guy's the driver and the female's the shooter, right? Because that's their role. Coming back, she's the driver, he's the shooter. Well, the number of convoys that were interdicted by improvised explosive devices, small arms fire at a convoy, they became combatants. I mean, no question about it. And they were good at it too, which was kind of interesting because in some of our debriefings, you know, the, the, um, the convoy came under attack and actually it was several of the women that were mindful enough of the threat, drug the guys out of the vehicle to safety. And they're kind of screaming, you know, like people scream when you're being shot at. Or um, women were often, you know, something is what seems like benign, like a contractor. Well, the contractors were the ones that might have $50,000 in cash to take to one of the community sheiks that were providing some protection um, for the troop, our troops moving through. So we paid them. The contracting um, system did that. Um, however, in order to get that person to the location where they need to make the drop of money, they go with a combat team that might on their way stop to snag somebody. So suddenly they're in a firefight. Um, or chaplain's assistants, that's my favorite. You know, chaplains, they don't carry, they don't carry weapons. So the chaplain assistant is basically the chaplain's bodyguard. And so if the chaplains want to walk around and do stuff that's highly not recommended and suddenly come under fire, well, it's their female um chaplain assistant, AKA bodyguard, that's now shooting for the, everyone's protection. So they're engaged. And I think the challenge that Tim and I saw was um, helping them make sense of their trauma experience, but also it's kind of, there's a little bit of a gender shift in terms of, you know, you think about, you know, those ideas about, um, you know, um, some of the early authors talking about different roles and men, you know, they have a, um, a justice or a, an ethic of justice, you know, little kids playing, you know, break the rules. We're going to take our marbles and go the hell home. We're not going to play anymore. And girls have an ethic of caring and relationship. And for them, I think combat really disrupted that uh, in a huge way. And so um, for women who um, thrive in relationship and connection, being in a combat environment where killing and things like that are the norm was uh, a factor that for me, you know, as a therapist looking at them was hugely important to address. How are you reconnecting these kind of things? So um, we saw a lot of that, making sure that um, we had women that were dealing with that to include things like anthrax, you know, anthrax shots um, affected women differently. I mean, it affected their GYN functioning differently. Um, they'd come back and start having all kind of disruption and, you know, recommendations for, um, various level of um, surgical procedures and things like that and find out um, that it was related to um, an anthrax shot. So um, women, um, from, from my point of view as a provider, um, really had a different um, take on, I mean, PTSD is PTSD, yes, um, but it's different. Um, again, I think it's different in how you... Um, kind of understand it, how you understand what's not processed and what the troubling dynamics are and the context in which the person's life is operating. So. Gotcha. The, uh, um, you know, that's, I, I, I can only imagine, uh, just the, the title says it all. I mean, you're coming to the complexities of everything that, uh, all the different, uh, um, soldiers that you would be seeing and, uh, what they might be dealing with, uh, 
You know, one of the things that you've mentioned a, a few times is uh, the, the, is the term PTSD, and it, and it's a term that gets thrown about in the media quite a bit, and in TV mm-hmm. and and different shows and stuff like this. Could you explain what that is, uh, what it's referring to, and the challenges that need to be addressed when you're talking about? It? I mean, can you kind of give us more of a specific talk about what it is? Because uh, most of us have learned from the the you know the the TV doctor. <laughs> yes. Uh, I actually normally start with some, kind of some psychoeducation with the veterans because most veterans think that PTSD is a psychotic disorder and it's actually not. It actually falls in the DSM-5 as an anxiety disorder. And so that helps them um, really kind of reprocess that when they hear that. Um, some don't, I use it that some people, not everyone will come back with PTSD. Some may have just generalized anxiety or just depression. Uh, PTSD is kind of considered the Cadillac of anxiety disorders. So when you think about generalized anxiety that most of us have on any normal day versus um, some type of agoraphobia where you're now just really fearful of being in public places, which oftentimes is what a combat veteran is looking at because a crowd, um, as they say, sometimes hard to um, show where a crowd ends and a mob begins. And so typically from post-traumatic stress, but the whole issues in in the terminology, it's your experience after you've gone through the trauma. So for combat veterans, while we're going through the firefight, we're trained to this stuff. We actually have become very good about, very resilient about it. So we do the work, and then now we come at home. Now we got a process of what we call after action reviews. You know, let's just talk about what you went through. Oftentimes, unless you send a therapist, you're not going to do the after action review. But your mind never forgets. There's a great book about the not the mind never forgets, and so your mind is trying to come up with based on your value system before you left, based on how you interpret life. Now let's look at how, how you perform. How's the, the uh, report card? Let's look at that because that's giving some indication. So PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is I share with veterans that if I put you, if you're diagnosed with PTSD, if I put you back in a combat zone, all the things that are problematic for you home in, in Ohio, in Georgia, go away. You're not sleeping in a combat zone, so you don't have to worry about insomnia. <laughs> you're constantly going all the time, so you're responding to the threat quickly, real time, not a problem. The challenge is how do you respond to those triggers um, where you are always kind of hypervigilant about what's going to happen? Is it someone going to break into my house tonight? How do you deal with that when you're in a peaceful environment? So that becomes part of the challenge and kind of helping them to work through that. So part of the piece is looking at one, it's not a psychotic disorder. You are not typically, as they would say, layman's terms, crazy or you've lost it you're dealing with a normal reaction to an abnormal event. And I think for a lot of people that becomes powerful, a normal reaction to an abnormal event. Again, three to 5% of the country at any point in time are uh, veterans that 0.45% are combat veterans. So it's like walking outside and seeing a Chevy or a Ford versus walking outside and seeing a Lamborghini. Now you wonder where's the doggone battery. I know where it is on a Ford and a, and a Chevrolet, but where is it on this Lamborghini? Never had one. So now I need someone to even tell me you buy the car because you got the money, but now you got to have the salesman tell you how to open the doggone thing up. <laughs> so I think that's the issue of dealing with PTSD is helping them to understand that this is a normal reaction to an abnormal event. And that secondly, it's an anxiety disorder. It is not a psychotic disorder. We're not dealing with schizophrenia here. We're not dealing with, you know, psychothymic disorder or borderline personality disorder. We're dealing with a heightened anxiety issue. And that I think speaks volumes when veterans, because now they realize, oh, so I'm not crazy. I'm just hypervigilant. Absolutely. That's all. That's all. Um, it's just very, you know, telling 
what I, what I want to say is it's very powerful, and I, I keep using that term, but it, it really is understanding that because, I mean, that's kind of how it's presented um, throughout, you know, lots of the, <laughs> I keep hating this, use this term, but the media or the, the TV shows or whatever is as if it's something that it's really not. Um, and, there's, there's a, there's a, um, a lack of failure to thrive. Most veterans will tell you uh, they come to therapy not because of a diagnosis. They come to therapy because oftentimes they're dealing with the uh, ambiguous loss. What does this mean for my life or the moral injury? You know, I was raised not to shoot, kill, and I did it. So I feel guilty. So I need you to help me to deal with it. And that's what pres- the veteran presents at the VA with or presents to their therapist with is they're really not there because they're really invested in the care. They're really there. How do I deal with the nagging moral injury question or how do I deal with this guilt I have around it? And it's really working through that in a normal environment, you wouldn't be carrying a gun anyway. You'd only have it at home. But in this environment, you are loaded to the gills with weapons and ammunition for a very reason. It's not because they like us. They really want us dead. I mean, that's really the, the art and gold of war is to kill your enemy before they kill you. If I if I shoot them, they get a purple heart. But if they shoot me, I get a purple heart. The goal for us is to make sure that they get the purple heart and we get the commendation medal, not the other way around. So there's a uh, kind of valor in doing that. But if we were machines, it'd probably be an easy fit. Uh, robotics, working in the Amazon factory. But we have thoughts, feelings. We have the ability that other uh, species don't have, which is we are different in that we have self-reflection. I did the work. Now, how do I feel about the work that I did, which is our own kind of educational uh, report card. And so they come in with those presentations because they're really trying to come up with how they feel, deal with that. And for many that open the door to suicide, usually it's because they answer that question in the sense that there was a moral failing on my part. I should be able to suck this up. I should be able to deal with it as opposed to this is tough. Number one, you're 0.45%. So there's not that many of you to go around to talk with about what you went through. So it's easy to um, post Vietnam or, or even World War One and two is the stuff that just don't talk about it and life's going to be good. But we all know what happens when we bottle up, um, you know, baking soda with, with water and stuff. It's going to bubble up. And the issue is when it bubbles up, I can't control when it comes out. Gotcha. It, now, something you mentioned in there, I, I was wondering if I could get you to go back and kind of explain what it is. You mentioned ambiguous loss. Can you, can you kind of really tell us what that is? Yes, ambiguous loss is really about um, um, it's unclear uh, or issues that you're dealing with that there is no clear path, no clear answer to or a situation that has no answer. And if you don't have an answer for us, there's no resolution. So for many of us, the question is why, you know, from the time we were little kids, we would ask why the zebras have stripes, why the cows uh, look white on the outside, but they, you know, or, or uh, this, how do we get chocolate milk from a, a cow? And so it's that whole kind of thing that questioning, and this is no different for the combat veteran. I did my job. Why am I not getting the service in the VA? Or I did my job. Why am I being mistreated? Or I did my job. Why am I struggling? I should be able to do this, change my baby's diaper, but or I should be able to make, I made chili before I left for the war. It's a common uh, thing you'll hear. They were good cooks, and now they come back. Now, that bowl of chili, you can imagine what it looks like when you look at it now. If you've seen uh, a brain trauma or someone shot and you, you saw a head injury. So for many of them, something as simple as they were known for their famous chili, they cannot make it anymore. So that ambiguous loss is, how do I deal with this unknown thing? You know, did I... No, we shot, but did we kill anyone? I don't know if I did, but I'm going to assume that I did, and now I'm feeling guilty, and I can't move forward. And so it becomes ambiguous, 
in the sense that we're not really sure. That's the ambiguous piece. The loss is something happened and I'm trying to make sense of it. And the answers in my mind before, you know, oftentimes before therapy is that you were just guilty. You were wrong. I mean, you took a life and you had no reason to, as though we were walking in a shopping mall and you just decided to shoot someone. Well, I mean, we were put in a combat zone. Uh, they were firing us and we had a, had a job to do. Our lives would be lost. So we did the job. And now we're dealing with the ambiguity of that, how I did it. You know, there's the, the politicization of, you know, was it a, a, a war we should have been fighting, those things. And so it uh, opens a lot of door. And I don't, uh, the colonel could speak more about it, but it really opens that door in terms of how do I make sense of this? And that's really what gets people into, into treatment. So I would, um, so your initial question about, about PTSD, you know, and kind of the, the media versus kind of the what, um, I, I like that, you know, Tim described it as a, um, essentially it's a, it's an anxiety disorder. And I think of all the different conditions that are out there that we might treat um, from a mental health standpoint, one of the unique dynamics of um, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is that it's event-driven in that um, something had to happen to the person um, in terms of a, an event in their life. And typically it has some characteristics to it that were life-threatening um, and various things like that. But I think the significance is that when I talk to somebody about what were you like before the event um, and after the event, um, and then ask them, you know, Tim and I use a thing, we kind of refer to it as a symptom map, but it really kind of tracked the diagnostic manual's criteria. But, you know, normally after event, you ask the person about, you know, where do you notice things like re-experiencing in terms of, you know, where is this, I use the phrase with people, where do you notice it's showing up again, right? Because that speaks to, you know, um, something sounds like, smells like, those kind of sensory kind of things. Um, I think earlier in our conversation, we were talking about, about, Tim was mentioned about avoidance, you know, and the number of um, veterans that we would see that would go to, um, they would go to um, go shopping in the middle of the night, right? They go to um, Walmart or someplace like that, um, Costco at 2 a.m. if it was open 24 hours. And part of the reasons was that they knew they weren't going to run into someone that was going to trigger them. Because that whole idea about sensory triggering something reminds us of the trauma event, um, and and so they start having avoidance. And avoidance is tricky because uh, avoidance feels good. It feels better than what it feels like to be confronted with um, the event or the issue that reminds us of the traumatic event. Um, and so that's there. And so people avoid um, people, places, and things that remind them of the trauma. And and, and then I think one of the other things is how um, a traumatic event impacts our, our thinking. So um, we kind of start getting a little bit negative, you know, if we go from maybe a worldview that people are good and fair to people aren't good, they're not fair. Um, you also see effects in terms of a person's spiritual functioning starts to get impacted that way. And so, you know, again, when those are there, I think that's a place where we start to see some of the impact on, um, certainly partner relational functioning, things like that. And then the piece that often trips folks up is that um, it's in the category of arousal, but it has to do with being hypervigilant um, and, and having a low frustration tolerance for stuff. And you're irritable and angry a lot. Um, and, you know, there's lightning outside and suddenly you think it's a bomb that went off. 
Um, so you're doing things that can be embarrassing and things like that uh, are there. But I think th- to take some time and um, kind of walk a person that's had a traumatic event through what those symptoms look like for them and have them kind of acknowledge it, they do like like Tim said, oh, that's what that is. And, and again, one of the impacts of trauma is control. And while, you know, we can't control everything and some things we can't control, we need to adapt. Well, this is one of them. Uh, and that we need to be mindful of that. Um, one of our veterans, um, um, it's, it's kind of an interesting part about um, experience, but, you know, our mortuary affairs, he's a mortuary affairs Marine, and he was in a local um, cheesecake factory. And somebody was looking at him funny, at least the way he described it to me. And what it was doing was ticking him off because it reminded him of a casualty that he had to um, process in terms of mortuary affairs. And somebody, so now he's hyped, right? So that arousal's up. Um, He would like not to have been there. He's got some intrusion, you know, coming in. Um, And all of a sudden he's sitting there with his wife. They're supposed to be having a nice evening. And he stands up and yells, yells, if you can imagine, in Cheesecake Factory, yells, I've put more MFs in body bags than are all you people sitting around here. Now, just imagine (laughs) what happens next. Well, everybody's like, what? You know, like, what? They're looking at him, staring at him. Um, His wife says, sit down, sit down. And he kind of is automatic and sits down. um, And he's kind of breathing heavy. Um, The waiter comes over and says, um, you know, one of these, are you okay? Uh, no, I'm not effing okay. Um, and says, well, can I get, <laughs> can I get you some cheesecake? You know? And he says, yeah, to go, you know? And so he and his wife left and had that cheesecake. Um, but that kind of story um, is repeated um, with many vets in terms of its intensity from somebody that has that kind of thing all the way to low intensity. Another place that this happens is our student veterans. You know, they go to class and they want to sit in the back of the class. And, you know, um, sometimes everybody wants to sit in the back of the class, so there's nowhere to sit. So there's so many different um, sensory triggers and things like that that are related to post-traumatic stress that when they're going back to their work or their academic environments, it makes it difficult. And so I know both Tim and I have had veterans who tried to go to school found that the classroom environment, you know, sometimes maybe a professor might say something like, well, you're a vet, so you're now the vet for the classroom and wants to them to explain something about a situation that, that they're, they don't want to talk about. Um, and, and so those are the kind of things that, you know, we start to see with our veterans. One of our veterans in school, um, the class was going around talking about um, the term was self-efficacy. Tell us something you're good about. This is one of those introductory exercises. So they're going around group and um, he can see it coming. He's kind of thinking, well, what am I good at? What am I good at? And so um, the person next to him kind of explains and now it's his turn and he's quiet and he's processing and he's stressing and he's like, not sure what to say. The professor says, um, so, um, tell me, what are you good at? And he, 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 he starts sweating and he blurts out killing. He's a, he's a Marine vet from Iraq and he is good at it. Um, but in that classroom, you can imagine um, he blurts out killing is what he's really good at. And, and he can sense as everybody just kind of what's with this guy, 
you know, and he starts crying and gets up and walks out of class. Um, so the thing about PTSD in part of the work is it's kind of fascinating is that um, it's kind of on the neurology of it, but you know, when your brain gets a trauma, it wants to help you remember how to not be exposed to that again, right? In combat or um, first responders, um, unfortunately, they do have to be exposed, combat vets until they're back from their deployment, um, Vietnam vets until they got their return date, uh, World War II until everybody came back. But the point is, is that um, your amygdala, your, neuro, your neurobiology is looking out for things to remind you to protect you. And so sometimes when vets would say to me something about, ah, oh, this happened, you know, my first response is you need to say out loud, thank you, brain, you're working for me and you're helping me. Because that's what really is going on. Because if it's something to prevent, to protect them, then um, that makes sense. But often it seems like something to avoid. But I think usually kind of midway through therapy, they kind of recognize part of the healing is acknowledging that. You know, a little bit like the, the neuroception scenario of, you know, you look on the ground and you see a, yeah, well, you see something. Is it a stick or a snake? Well, it makes a difference. <laughs> you know, you go bend over and that bad boy is, you know, doing the, you know, Mr. Hips thing, uh, and it's poisonous, you don't want to pick it up. But if it's a, it's a stick, and it's just kind of a curly stick, then okay. But for that little, you know, those milliseconds, uh, that's what's there. And, and so PTSD changes us in such a way to prevent, to protect us from being exposed, and it protects us through what we often, you know, there's one of the um, um, sections of the book that talks about um, some of the um, long-term challenges around working through PTSD, and that's what those issues about triggers are about. But I think that that's a significant part as people kind of map out, what do I have? Because everybody doesn't have all of it. Everybody has some of it. And then how to work out um, where do I notice it and what do I do with it? Because I can run away from it or I can stay there. For me, you know, I'm driving down the road, and when I first got back, um, I'm with Mary, my wife, and kids. We're in Beaver Creek, and they had built a bridge over um, uh, Route 35. It's one of the local roads. And as I'm approaching it, um, I'm looking at it, and I see people on the bridge, which is a big flag negative for me. So I pull the car over, and excuse my language, I said out loud, shouldn't have, I said, somebody needs to get out of the car and put some rounds up on that fucking bridge and get those people off of there. And Mary looks at me and said, what? Bobby, my um, high-intensity Army son, says, oh, cool, Dad, I'll do it, you know. And, but, but I'm sitting there thinking, what in the world? And it took me a moment to recognize that that was then, Iraq, this is now Beaver Creek, 2007 or 8, and I just need to breathe and calm down and things like practice again what we preach. But, again, it was my brain helping me recognize that there was a time when going under a bridge – with people on a bridge, something as benign as that was threatening because we had an event where we drove underneath a bridge early in our deployment. There were people up there. They ran to the other side, pushed concrete debris over the bridge, tried to disarm our vehicle. Small arms fire came later. They didn't disarm the vehicle, so we drove off. But it was just one of those shock, scary things that my brain recorded. And so when I see saw things then, that was there. Um, again, 17 years later, I don't respond that way. 
my brain recognizes that ah, that's not a threat. That's just construction guys, things like that. So I don't make that big swerve. Um, Tim had mentioned about guys doing things when they first get back, driving erratically and getting pulled over. And the cop asks them, why are you driving erratically? Are you been drinking? And they don't even tell the police officer that, well, really, I saw a bag of trash in the road and thought it was the bomb. So they just made a really fast maneuver right in front of the police and the police pulled them over, but they didn't want to say what was going on because again, um, they were triggered by something like that. And, and the triggering, while it's, it's painful and difficult, um, is there. Um, and, it, and it happens along all sensory dimensions. And so um, we were working with a group of uh, police officers yesterday. I mentioned about being Southwest Ohio um, critical incident stress team. And we were kind of in the debriefing and we're talking about kind of what do you remember and responses. And I remembered kind of the, you know, thinking about sensory, you often don't think about the gustatory or taste sense, but if you've ever done CPR on a human, um, whatever you were eating or taste before that, when you put your lips at person, they start doing, you know, rescue breathing for them, there's a taste transfer and that taste later will show up. And sometimes you'll just find yourself maybe eating a Reese's cup and feeling sweating like crazy and wondering what in the heck's going on. And then you've got to make the connection because your brain wants to connect the threat message. Is it a threat? Is it pleasure? Um, and the message might've been that I ate a Reese's cup right before I did CPR on that baby that died, you see. And so um, those kind of events are loss events, not so much trauma, but they're like, they're trauma like, but that's that area of, um, of what I think about when I think about PTSD, I got an event that's happened and then there's this specific symptom group that takes place in regard to ambiguous loss. You know, one of the things that we learned, um, about, um, you know, people are there one minute and they're gone the next. Right. And so, um, it's the, the idea is ambiguous. Well, what happened to them? And our brain wants to understand, you know, um, sometimes we're, you know, when people deploy, the idea is that um, b- before you deploy, you're physically present, but psychologically absent because your brain's trying to get ahead of what I need to do. But once you're gone, um, now you're physically absent, psychologically present in the minds of folks. But but people have all kinds of things that occur, everything from a um, like a, a murder, you know, that can become ambiguous. Um, somebody dies suddenly things like that. Um, in a combat environment, they're there. In normal life, they're there. Um, so um, I think we thought it important to put, to, to give some um, some time to talk about that ambiguous loss because we I started noticing, and I'm sure Tim did as well, that that was um, kind of one of those areas where uh, people were really kind of struggling with, you know, um, you know, like you grew up in a parent left, you know, think about um, you know, I've read studies that talk about for female army veterans, you know, as many as, I mean, it was almost like 60% have had, you know, a single parent scenario where a parent left. But think about the ambiguity that goes with why did my dad or my mom leave me and my brothers and sisters? Um, that kind of thing is there. Um, sometimes chronic illness, you know, we see veterans that come back and they're different. And sometimes, you um, we'd be in session and either a family member would say, well, I liked you better the way you were. Right. And so the ambiguous loss issue there is, well, my identity has changed. You know, we think about who I was before, 
you know, I'm this happy go lucky person life of the party. I come back and I'm now quiet. I sit and watch TV and the TV isn't even on, you know, kind of things. I don't engage in the party. Um, those kind of things I've lost that person. Um, sometimes a person will even say, I'm not the person I was after being in a, you know, kind of the psychology of killing, if you will, but after you're exposed to that kind of stuff, um, it's, it's, um, when I think about ambiguous loss, I think about being army basic training and the first time, you know, and I grew up, um, hunting, not a whole lot, but hunting, you know, in Northern Ohio, um, we'd hunt pheasants and rabbits and deer and typically, you know, we eat it or give it to somebody, but, um, the first time um, I was in Army basic training and I'm on the range and I'm sighting in a, a rifle and I'm looking at a silhouette, kind of like I see Tim's silhouette, right? But I'm looking at it and that's a really different sight picture than ever, right? Because it's a human sight picture, right? And so what I, and so then fast forward to deployment and all those kind of episodes to shooting at and probably shooting people, um, there's a loss of that part of me. You know, and it's ambiguous. I didn't, I didn't, you know, you know, if you, if you lost something, it's ambiguous by nature. You know, I lost my keys. Well, where are they? You know, and the idea, well, I haven't found them yet. Assuming you'll find it, but a lot of these things aren't coming back. And I think to give um, our combat vets and our combat vets and their families some understanding of that and encouraging them to read more about it as it applies to them, I think is, is a huge dynamic in regard to just that concept of ambiguous loss. Got it. it you know, and, and I appreciate you guys taking time to explain that term because I, mm-hmm. I thought I understood it and it really makes more sense now. Thank you. I, you know, one of the, one of the things that I've uh, got to ask about is, you know, if you had a chance to talk with families of soldiers that are returning from a war zone deployment, I mean, what's something that you would want to tell them about addressing challenges that may appear? I mean, we we heard um, Tim talk about the um, person who has to poke her son with a the handle because afraid of how he might react, and and uh, I mean, what what would you tell him? Well, I would. I think my um, biggest message is um, kind of know what you have, right? How how I've changed because I, I use the metaphor a lot about. What were you guys like before? What are the things that you now have as part of deployment? And as you're trying to work out the redeployment stuff, how do you want to be? You know, and as I was looking at um, kind of the idea about identity development, you know, um, Tim had mentioned about uh, Maslow's hierarchy. Um, if I if I boil it down in terms of character traits, right? Um, what are the character traits that you'd want to have? And actually, I, I had a worksheet for a while that was actually was from if you were writing a book about a, a fictional book or writing a play about character development. Um, what are the character um, traits that you want to have? And so I asked them, well, what were, you know, did you have things like were you um, truthful and honorable and courageous, things about values? And how do you want that to look? Who do you want to be? And um, sometimes I'll ask people, if you, have you ever been in a play, right? Most people have been in a play at some, some type, you know, either in high school, college, school. Um, but whatever character you, you were going to be, you had to learn some lines, right? And you probably flubbed the heck out of your lines. You probably, you know, ah, cut, cut. You know, let, me, let me go back over what was the line, things like that. Because that's a little bit what it's like when you're back from deployment and you're trying to be you. 
um, but you're different, right? So you got to figure out what are your lines and be um, flexible enough to, if you're flubbing your lines and you're pissing your spouse off, stop. And, and don't get into blaming because the more you blame, you can't fix anything you blame on somebody else. You got to own it. And, hey, I blew my lines. I'm sorry. You know, much like, um, like I tell you about driving under the bridge, I needed to look at Mary and Mars and Bobby and say, hey, guys, I'm sorry. This felt just like it did when I was deployed. And that's kind of where I was for a moment. But that's not where I am now. So it's back to that. How do I want to be and actively practice it? You know, one of the one of the fellows that I see, um, he used the term, I got to work on my, you know, I work on my resume. Everybody gets this on my resume for my job, you know, and I've got to look at my communication, all those different things that go on a good resume. And um, he, he used the phrase, what's my husband resume look like? You know, because I said, well, you need to work on your husband resume. It's almost the same kind of thing. What are those qualities and characteristics that you want to be known for now, post-deployment, and practice that? And just like almost anything else you want to good at, be good at. If you want to learn a new language, you got to practice every day. If you want to learn to be more compassionate, you want to learn to be a better listener, you want to be better communicating, you want to be better at conflict management, you want to be better at intimacy, whatever it is, you know where you are, but practice what it takes to be better at it and Ask your spouse, partner, coworkers, et cetera, how am I doing? Um, and you'll get there um, because it's, 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 there's the therapy part, but there's also the growth part, you know, and I think that um, one of the uh, statements on the cover, you know, from Martin Seligman, who does a lot of work around suicide, you know, is the idea about treatments, not just fixing what's broken. Cause that's kind of, you know, well, I'm broken. And you hear this, you know, in the media, you know, so such and such is broken. Yeah, okay, there's that part. We'll work on it. But it's also, you know, kind of like that strength-based part, which has to do with nurturing what's best within ourselves. we got to nurture that. So those characteristics of you that were good before, let's let's keep those strengths and, and work out some other things that, you know, maybe weaknesses, maybe not. They're just how you want to be in the world. And let's practice that. Gotcha. The- you know, one of the things that, uh, and I think it would be so important because, you know, just uh, knowing what you might be experiencing or might be seeing or might not even realize that you're seeing um, and having some something to help you deal with that or recognize it would be so important. I, you know, who have you written, who have you guys been writing for? Who are you keeping in mind uh, when when you wrote uh, Complexities and Challenges? I mean, who who is that target person that it, uh, should read your book? Well, I think um, I think anybody that's a veteran of any um, of any anybody that's a combat veteran for sure. Um, I think anybody that's a um, even a peacetime vets because they experience uh, trauma of various types. They feel those kind of betrayals and things of that nature. You know, right now all over the media is you know if you drink any water at Camp Lejeune. Um, you know, talk to this lawyer because there must be some big cash of, of dollars, but that's not going to help you understand um, kind of what your role was in being there. So I think our veterans, certainly our combat veterans of any any kind of war group, our veterans in general, I think our first responders, I think our educators that um, have student veterans, you know, in their classrooms, um, I think our student veteran organizations 
or another group, because um, even though um, I was talking to my class a few weeks ago and we were talking about um, the whole redeployment thing and coming back, well, we're, we've been out of Afghanistan since last year, um, but the piece that's that's there that, that Tim and I noticed um, and did some research about is it can be as much as seven years from the time a person comes back from a deployment before they seek help. So that's a long window of cooking this stuff. The other piece is that um, if only about on a really good day with our Iraq-Afghanistan vets, 50% are seen in the VA, um, that means half of them are not. And so if people are doing um, some level of self-help, that's going to be there for them. I think that um, that therapists, people that are doing training in schools, academic environments that are teaching psychotherapy, um, I think that would be helpful for them um, to take a look at, at that material. Um, not as the source material necessarily like the research articles and things like that, but much more conceptually um, designed. Um, and then I think in our first responder community as well, um, because, you know, what I start hearing is some of this material um, should be taught in the academies, whether it's fire, EMS, police, um, those kind of contexts. Um, so I think that for me would be there. And, and certainly when I say veterans, family members as well, because for them, um, sometimes vets don't want them to be part of their therapy and that's fine. Um, but they need a frame of reference to understand what's going on. And sometimes that frame of reference is um, what helps them understand enough to open the conversation because they're using some of the same language. Uh, or they might even say, well, hey, Bill and Tim in their books say this. And so, <laughs> you know, that might help them, you know, open up a conversation because I think sometimes um, that's one of the biggest parts is, is just the willingness to have that conversation. Um, and I think, you know, probably um, – I think it, it really isn't a specific group, um, but I think the um, the other side is that um, I think that anybody that's dealing with, you know, stress-related kind of injuries from work, you know, I was thinking about this work a lot as it related to our COVID um, response in terms of um, different dynamics going on with our nurses and healthcare workers um, that were going through 2020, 2021, you know, going through burnout, um, I thought a lot about um, our nurses and folks that were deployed, you know, and our medics that were deployed and what their experience was like when they get overwhelmed with, you know, combat casualties uh, and how they needed to regroup and go back to work. So I think um, in healthcare environment, that would be another audience that I think would benefit. Very cool. Very cool. The, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I want to uh, just kind of give you an opportunity to to suggest something, maybe, um, if you had a chance to talk before Congress and say, "What you know, there's something that should be looked at with veteran uh, affairs, or there should be something that should be looked upon with uh, at uh, with veteran uh, uh, medical needs and such like this," what would you want to make sure that you told them they need to look at and address? Well, that for me would fall in two directions. One. I would, I would think, I would think about um, screening and assessment. You know, you hear like nationally stories about, you know, anxiety is a big issue and we've got to have in primary care screening for anxiety. I think with, um, if I were talking to Congress about uh, the veteran affairs, I think that the um, work that was done in the um, freedom centers, the, the OEF, OEF post 
employment clinics, and every medical center had one. We just happened to call ours the Freedom Center. But I think that the, the work that those centers did in terms of screening, assessment, um, getting our veterans into the flow of care, and then providing care and follow-up in terms of case management should really be kind of the national model. I think that um, we, like I said, for me, I'm learning, you know, the idea about we stand on the shoulders of those who come before us. Well, um, we learned a lot from our Vietnam. That was the last big conflict about what not to do and what to do. We know that we need to not just, you know, it's more than just substance abuse and things like that. So I would say the screening, I think we, um, we would, in regard to that screening, be more mindful of uh, rather than trying to teach things or, tra- or treat things one at a time, I think the whole idea about um, co-occurring disorders, which is what the P5 model is about, is that um, you have to work them at the same time. You know, So I think that that's an important part as well. And then, again, because um, if you're a guard and reserve, as opposed to an active duty, an active duty has access to mental health resources. You know, Tim and I have worked at the VA. We've worked at Wright Pat Medical Center. We've worked at other active duty facilities. So our active duty folks probably have better access to that full spectrum of physical and mental health. Um, But on the VA side, um, I think that um, they need that access. And so the um, CARES Act, which presumably allows Um, If we don't have enough mental health um, resources or physical health resources, we can move them in the community. I think there needs some rework because it's not to suggest that, you know, in in the greater Dayton area, we only have so many therapists, right? So, um, and many of them are already booked. So you got to figure out how are you going to do that? And I think that with our um, garden reserve, we got to be mindful of cost because if a person you know, if I said, you know, so like marital therapy, marital problems is not um, typically covered by insurance. It's not covered in EAPs. So if you're having, you know, the partner relational problems, um, that's going to be out of pocket. So I think that um, one of the things about out of pocket expenses is people won't do it. You know, I've talked to couples before, and if I'm going to charge you 150 bucks a session, right, twice a month, that's $300 a month, right? Uh, you might be better off you and your wife to go have fun for 300 bucks. You know, have a really great dinner, go to a super movie, laugh like hell. That's probably going to do you as much as, you know, what we're going to do in an hour and a half. So I would talk about, about how do we make sure that there's not, not just a slush fund, but funds that are available for veterans that if they need to seek help and they found a therapist that they feel works well with them, um, that they can access that without a whole lot of red tape, either for them or for the therapist, because a lot of therapists go to cash practice because of all the challenges with um, insurance. Um, and I would also probably ask about, um, on the academic side, um, that making sure that there's a, a good link between, um, if there's a local military facility or VA, that the student veterans, whether they're service connected or not, if they have any any needs that they can access that um, either through their, um, like here at Dayton, or excuse me, at Wright State, they have a Veterans Military Center. And a lot of um, universities have those. Um, But I think that if there's some funding flow um, to those organizations um, in regard to access to care, and it might be counseling, not necessarily full-blown therapy, but I think that 
the 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 dollar issue in terms of who pays, I think, could be significantly improved. But I think those big things would be, you know, the OEF OIF post-deployment clinics have been a model, and that they should. While again, they might have wound down, that that should be a, a big model um, for how the VA, you know, structures their care. Excellent. Thank you so much. The, it, you know, and it's something that, uh, you know, listening to you as you talked, I think uh, um, we have uh, gotten better at least at some of the things that we do um, to try and help as we've identified more. Cause you know, you go way back and you're talking about uh, a society that pretty much said, uh, yeah, you just need to kind of put it, just put it out of your mind and you'll be fine. You know, and, to coming forward and really understanding what uh, it was happening in these different ages that uh, caused them stress and trying to find them uh, uh, solutions. So, well, you know, a big thing is, I mean, uh, of all the different dynamics, one of the things that, that um, trauma experience, whether it's formal combat related PTSD or um, adverse childhood event kind of trauma, all those kind of things disrupt our emotion regulation. Right. And we're kind of operating at a time where um, as things are gotten polarized, you know, you can find someone to support your ideas and things like that. Okay, fine. But to what extent we can contribute to helping people learn emotion regulation skills. And I know Tim does a lot of that with dialectic behavior therapy, but emotion regulation is huge because uh, emotion regulation is counterbalanced by acting out. And um, again, acting out can be if, if I feel a burden to myself, to my friends and family, from pain, from a future that just looks bleak, that's where we start to see things about suicide showing up. And um, one of the dynamics um, for me, um, a veteran that Tim and I have worked with, um, he committed suicide in the end of June 2020. And in his context, um, that idea about um about ideation to action, which is that idea about, we have a lot of people that have thoughts of harming others. You know, um, the violence project talks about school related violence and academic in schools and universities. Um, we talk a lot about suicide, that self-directed violence. Um, but one of the key things has to do with that idea about in terms of what goes from an idea about something to hurt myself, hurt others, and action is that issue about regulation and recognizing what's hyping us up in a negative way and what's calming us down. And learning those kind of regulation skills is just important. Other countries like Denmark, they teach that in elementary school. You know, they teach different games to help kids learn to regulate that. Um, for us, we kind of wait until you've probably gotten into trouble, um, either in school or something, and you're sent to the principal because, you know, somebody said something, pissed you off, and you smack someone. Well, that's that kind of thing. Well, we need to learn to regulate that. And we know trauma, you know, adds to that. So we're, we're kind of has a little bit of a quicker trigger, if you will. But um, I think that emotion regulation for me is, is kind of a constant theme of learning just to kind of calm myself down um, so that my past trauma events, my past losses, kind of the wear and tear of the day to day, you know, or the, the um, the grief and stuff from things that have happened don't overwhelm me. And, you know, we're post the point we're post um, COVID. Um, but if we've lost, you know, we've lost so many people and people have lost family members throughout. 
So we've got to learn to how to work that stuff through. And I think um, indirectly, the, the material in the book kind of speaks to that, but emotion regulation uh, is just so important as a, if, if I had one skill to teach, it'd be that one. Excellent. I, I you know, uh, we're getting, we're getting close to closing and uh, um, Tim and Bill and uh, bef- before, before we go uh, um, and, and Tim, is there something that you'd like to add to that? I'm sorry. I, I almost didn't ask you. I mean, no, no, no. I'm, 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 I definitely concur. Um, I, I think um, having been um, the, chairman and the president of the board for the National Association of Social Workers that work very well with a lot of the congressmen and the senators in the area in terms of how do we improve the service delivery. And as Bill said, the, the whole issue of the red tape. And one of the things that we took pride in the Freedom Center, we used the phrase, there's no wrong door. Mm-hmm. No matter where you come into the VA system, um, if there was a, a, an appointment you had, rather than tell you, it's still on the third floor, take a left, walk down, and then it's a right we would take the time to walk you there because part of bureaucracy is we assume that you're as intelligent about the information that we're sharing or giving as the, the veteran or as the, the staff is. And the issue is, I, as I would say all the time, this might be my seventh patient for the day, but this is their first experience with me. And so oftentimes that's the model that you will typically see when we engage in bureaucracies that they just assume that, you know, what I know. And so when I say, well, no, you don't have it on the right form. You don't have it on this. Oh, that's good information to hear. But can you give me a format of what it looks like, what it should look like? Now you've given me some education as opposed to I can do it 10 times. And you'll say, that's not right. That's not right. Um, but if you give an example, we can follow through on that. And so it's really to Bill's point. A lot of the emotional regulation is not necessarily because the veteran wakes up and says, you know, what, I just want to be pissed off today. Or, you know what, yesterday I woke on the right side of the bed, but today, you know, I'm thinking to wake up on the wrong side and everything goes wrong. Usually this, that, that emotional regulation. And unfortunately, sometimes it's really how the veteran perceives our action. Do we look like we're threatening to them? Do we look like we want to care? And one of the things that um, I always say that uh, veterans don't really care about how much you know, but they do care about how much you care. And that's one of those quantities and variables that people can sense, whether it's over the phone, um, your response, or whether it's in person, uh, your response. They can sense really, really good. And as I share with a lot of married uh, cases, that if I can show empathy towards your wife or to your, toward, toward your husband, um, now you're married to them. So it's incumbent upon you to kind of model that, that same behavior because the issue, oftentimes we're dealing with the emotional regulation, it feels like a threat environment. So I'm going to respond to the threat as it was a threat, not realizing that the situation is a threat, not my wife or the kids. It's amazing what uh, um, you guys come to, together to do and working with the patients that you have and to help them uh, um, become part of, uh, you know, to overcome whatever those challenges are and to become part of our, um, you know, to get them back into their, into the, into the world that they'd like to be part of. I guess that's yeah. where I'm going with yeah. that. It's awesome. Uh, you know, uh, Tim and Bill, before before we close, could you let everyone know where they could connect and learn more? Do you have a place you'd like me to send them to, put in the show notes, anything like that? No, for, for me, um, so so the, the Center for Life, Stress, and Psychotherapy, um, my email address is William and Mary. It's the one you use, williamandmary77 at gmail.com. Um, and I don't have a website, mostly because as I was um, kind of working on, you know, the clinical side in 2020, it occurred to me that a website management is a full-time job in and of itself. <laughs> I thought, wait, I want to spend as much time putting things there as I am doing the work. So I, I haven't established a website, 
Uh, but I welcome folks if they, you know, to contact me that way and um, we'll go from there. Gotcha. And I'll, I'll uh, put that in the, in the show notes. Uh, um, Tim, do you want to add anything? Yes. Um, my website, you can reach me at um, www.drtimmoss.com and it kind of gives you an overview of what we've done. And you're also able to purchase a book through that website in addition to going to Amazon to purchase there. Um, similar to Bill, um, my Gmail address is drtimmoss at gmail.com. And so because um, part of the goal is being able to you know, get the book uh, in in the hands of people that, that need it most. And we're dealing with family members, the veterans themselves, because uh, the book for the veteran helps them to kind of articulate what they're really feeling for the uh, family members. It helps them to get a sense of um, one of my reviewers. In fact, the first draft of the book, um, I happened to be talking to another veteran that was in the room and I turned back and one of the reviews is actually taking screenshots of the, the draft books. Like, Oh no, this works right now. I, I, my son served in Afghanistan. He, this is what's going on with him right now. So I got a chuckle and I said, well, that's the purpose of the book. <laughs> nice. You can go in it and you don't have to start from front to back. If you're dealing with chronic pain that day, you can just flip to the chapter on chronic pain and walk through it. And oftentimes it's very educational because now it allows you to have the same vernacular and um, vocabulary that the uh, neurologist has. So now you're able to kind of share with him or her this, I may not be able to say it right, but that word right there on this page, on page 91 is what I'm dealing with. Or, you know, kind of look at this, this was helpful to me. And so, because the goal is, again, is to get the information out there because um, our veterans, again, they've served at the tip of the spear. Um, they've put they've, their lives on the line. And when um, folks know that uh, they see my hat or know that I'm a veteran, they will often respond, thanks for your service. And my answer to them, which is what often have grabbed my answer back to them, they'll say, thanks for your service, doc. And I will say, you're worth it. And they kind of look like I'm worth it. Yes. That's why we do what we do because you are worth it. We fight uh, in, in war because our country, um, despite some of the challenges is still in my mind, the best country on the planet and the people of this country are worth fighting for. And when a veteran hears that it helps them to eat, to one be reflected, but it also, you know, it, it can, can kind of choke them up in the sense that that's validation that I needed today, that I'm worth you doing the work that you do. I like that. That's awesome. That is awesome. I, Absolutely. So I've got uh, two last questions I'd like to ask. One is this. Um, as someone who's looked upon, uh, whether as a caregiver, a helper, a healer, how do you make sure that you don't become overcome by the stresses of helping others? <laughs> well, I'll tell you the way I work it is, um, so I have, on my desk there used to be literally three documents. One of them was the, it looks like a brain drawing and it's kind of like, how does trauma come up to the amygdala, go through the thalamus and all like that. And one of those kind of ways just to kind of give a person kind of a map. Um, the other one is the defense pain scale, right? So the defense veteran pain scale is a zero, a zero to 10. It's in color. And the cool thing about it, of all the pain scales, it gives a little descriptor of, you know, when you're three, your pain is um, it's kind of there. It's kind of a naggy thing. When you're at a five, um, it, it's starting to be um, noticeable. Six, seven, eight, and so on. It gets to the point where you can't um, you can't avoid it. It's 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 there. You got to do something. Um, and then the other one that I use um, is called the um, and I hand it out all the time is the um, is the stress continuum model. And the stress continuum model is one of those, it's a little bit like a stoplight chart. 
But when you're green in relation to stress, and sometimes I'll just intro, you know, everybody has a GPS, right? Um, well, unless you have an old car or a truck, <laughs> but you have a GPS and your GPS is so you kind of know where you are in relation to the rest of the world. Well, in stress, you know, we talk about, well, this much stress and you can be cognitive, it can be this and that, except the problem is, is that how do you know where you are with it? So the stress continuum model, um, I think Patricia Wilson and her Watson and her team came up with it around 2006. I started seeing it, but the cool thing about it is that when you're when you're green, you're good to go. You're ready, right? You you you've done your training. You're ready to go. Whatever it is your day has out there for you, you're good to go. And if it's just say I go get paid today, okay, no big deal. But when something's going on in your life, whether it's you got a letter from the IRS or you got to cut the grass and you didn't, your mower broke, things like that. Those are the kind of things that are yellow. There's something that's challenging you, um, but you know I got to pay attention to it. And typically there are things that I need to pay attention to, my peers pay attention to, my family, you know, they're going to notice those kind of things. If it continues to build, then I'm orange. And when you're orange, you're certainly different because now you're irritable, snappy, things like that. I use the fresh. If I came in my office and slammed the door, kicked the, the trash can, start cussing and swearing, hopefully somebody will come to my office and say, Colonel Wall, are you okay? Because I don't normally act that way. And that's one of the ways that we kind of know that something's going on with me. When you're red, that's when you need formal therapy. You're probably diagnosable and things like that. So on that continuum, and it's fluid, right? I can be a certain way at a certain time. And so the thing about those, about the stress continuum and the defense pain scale is it gives kind of a common language. And so here's an example. Um, this past um, April, well, March, April, um, my wife's sister um, who was in, who was hospitalized for um, advanced Alzheimer's, or excuse me, um, Alzheimer's, early onset Alzheimer's disease, and, and Colleen was declining, right? We went to visit the end of March up in Wisconsin, and we had a really good visit. And um, the, the visit was good because she recognized us. Um, we didn't have some of the snippy, snappy kind of interactions. We didn't wear out, so on and so forth. We had a good visit. Um, so clearly at the end of that visit, I'm green. Yeah, I'm good to go. We're driving back. Mary and I are having a super conversation. Um, we get back on a Saturday, Sunday, on that following Wednesday, we get a call from the facility. She's had, she's had a fall. Her pupils are now fixed and dilated. She's dying, right? So we pack it up the following, we pack it up, get our stuff together, and we go up that Saturday. And so now we're basically on a death watch until the 12th of April when she passes away. And so people would ask me, how you doing, right? And I would say, well, I'm yellow today. Right. And I would explain them where I'm at. So it was a common language or I'm orange today. This is hurting. I'm feeling like we can't. There's nothing we can do. Uh, maybe we, you know, kind of that we should have had or evaluated and all these kind of things. And I'm troubled. Um, I never got red. And, I don't, and I'd ask Mary, how are you? And I well, what color are you? You know, this kind of thing. Give a common language. Um, and as things transitioned after she passed and we came back and friends and family say, Hey dad, how you doing? I'd say, well, I'm kind of orange or I'm yellow. I'm doing better. Um, and somebody said, well, what's going on? I said, well, here's, here's an example. Um, after she died, it was as if, as if, you know, the bookcase that's behind me fell over, all my books landed on the ground. And now I got to tip the bookcase back up and put them all back in. That's that idea about how we reassess things after a big loss like that. 
Um, but it took me a while to go from yellow back to green. Um, and just before I was about to be green, Mary, we went to North Carolina and Mary got sick, right? Big stressor. So I'm back to yellow again. So I use those kind of ways to do that. I've got a um, back injury. And so um, like this morning, it came downstairs. Mary said, how are you doing? And she says, well, how's your back? I said, oh, I'm about a three or a four. Because it, it gives common, if I just said I'm fine, you know, um, um, the, the, the term for fine and substance abuse is effed up, insecure, neurotic, and um, neurotic and um, externalizing. Yeah, it, it, it means everything but that because people will do that all the time. How are you doing? I'm fine. You know, and you're not fine by any stretch. Um, so I use those two, the stress continuum model and the defense pain scale. You know, sometimes I'll say, hey, do you know the pain scale? Most people have seen them in a doctor's office just as a way to communicate to use a common language in regard to not only pain, but also stress because it changes over time. And I think that, you know, for me, it's, you know, I, people understand, you know, and, and if I said something like that, um, that works. I gave another example, a fellow that Tim saw came to see me and my defense pain scales on the desk. And while it's a physical pain scale, sometimes I'll trip folks up and say, well, if this were an emotional pain scale, where would you be? And so he, he, he was telling me about his pain because I knew he had surgery. And he says, oh, I'm about a five, maybe a four. I'm doing pretty good. And I said, well, I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing emotionally? He said, well, I'm actually like a nine. I said, oh, you know, I said, what's the nine about? And he said that um, a close, uh, very close friend of his had committed suicide about a month earlier. And that opened the door for that kind of conversation. So um, those kind of things are there. I use them just as tools, but also as ways to communicate language and open the door for maybe sometimes other conversations. Appreciate it. The, the uh, it's something that, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people don't think about, but it's, it's interesting to hear how, how we deal with what we, what we do. Here, so. Here's what mine looks like. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <have one> in. <laughs> Colorful. If I have a pain <laughs> <laughs> so Tim, how about you? Um, can you ask the question again? Basically, uh, the idea is uh, um, is this: is that uh, you know you're you're asked to be a caregiver or a helper or a healer. I mean, that's mm -hmm. part of your role, and is helping people address the challenges they have. How do you take care of you? Because after helping people like that, uh, you know, at some point, it's going to has a way of creeping in, in the, the caregiver or the helper's world. And so I was wondering how you, how you protect yourself. Well, there's a great book that's out there called when um, helping you is hurting me. And oftentimes the veteran, you know, if you're the caregiver, uh, they want you to go to work and make the bacon and, and come home and take care of folks. And um, I use the approach. I do a lot of lectures around um, staff development. So I always use the phrase and um, we had some challenges in, in the VA system because I did the same lecture and I said, um, we focus on take care of the customer. The customer's always right. But my philosophy, I flipped this on his head and said, take care of the staff because it is the staff that take care of the client. And so it's, as I shared with a with mom, you have to be able to take care of you. So if you're constantly feeding the kids, you're going to be malnourished and you're going to be you know, deprived of the, the, the essential nutrients you need to sustain you. So um, as they say on an airplane, if we have a, a reduced oxygen, put your mask on first and then put the mask on, on your children or those that are acting like children. <laughs> and so self-care is critically important for me. I uh, do a um, uh, master fitness training, so I do a lot of exercise. I 
attend to my issues and similar to, to build kind of look at the, the, the pain scale. I've kind of, you know, for me, I use it on a one to five scale. So I know at five, I'm no good to anyone. So I've got to take time to, um, I enjoy jazz music. So usually when I'm either writing or when I'm uh, on the road, I'm listening to jazz music that gets me in the, in the frame of mode that helps me to look at creative thought, the, the improvisation. What do I do to get me back from the five back to the one or from the, the red to the orange back to the, to the green and being aware of that because one, um, that as a wounded healer, I can only be as effective with you to the degree I take care of myself mm-hmm. in, in a society that really promotes um, taking care of other people. And certainly in, a, in Christian circles, the issue is um, the, the biblical mandate is to love your neighbor as you love yourself, not more than, which is like narcissism or less than, which is where we get these um, self martyrs. I'm going to love myself less than, but equal to, so that means I've got to one be a role model of what I'm practicing, what I'm preaching, but also be attuned enough to myself that if I need time, you know, if I'm dealing with loss in my own family, to t- take the time. And so um, for me, I, I think it's um, it, that's kind of how I live my life in terms of being kind of checking in with myself, um, and then make sure that I'm there for others as well. But definitely attending to those issues and being, as Bill said, to be able to articulate that. Um, today's not probably the best day for me to be at the top of my, that where I'm at the top of my game. So let me take time to process, you know, where am I at today and what's really going on the consciously or subconsciously and kind of use that perspective to address it. Gotcha. Thank you. This has been awesome. Can I add something? Sure. Sure. Uh, So Tim, Tim made a comment about staff, which reminded me of, you know, one of the other things that I think we do um, and it happens in clinical work. I think we probably borrowed it from education or academia, but it's that whole idea about reflective practice. And um, one of the things that we would do in our staff meetings, and I, I still do it, um, is the, in reflective practice, we just kind of review, you know, despite how difficult the week might have been, you could do it daily, but, you know, weekly seemed to work and was really just kind of openly just kind of either self-talk, have a discussion with yourself at the end of the day. And the questions are, what do you like about what you've done today, right? What do I like about what I've done today with others or with myself or with my garden? It doesn't matter. But what do I like about what I've done? And then the other question is, if I had it to do over again, what would I do different? Not what did I do wrong, but what would I do different? Because that's a chance to go, oh, well. And then if you get it to do another time, you get to do that. And then we hear a lot about gratitude moments, but I'll, I'll tell you, if we stay on the line till it's um, – till 23 after one, you're going to hear my watch go off (laughs) because I have a setting on my watch at one, two, three. And it's just because it should be easy as one, two, three. And that's my daily gratitude moment where when my watch goes off, I want to think of three things that I have gratitude for. And it's, it's quick. What's funny is that patients that I have or people that I see regularly, my watch will go off and do you need to call somebody? Nope. And I just do it quietly, but they'll want to participate. And I'll just say, well, tell me three things that you appreciate or you have gratitude for. And it's just one of those fun kind of things. But what I know is that for me and probably for others, if, if by scheduling it, my watch beeps, it reminds me to do it. Um, and I do it and I have fun with it. Others hear it and they'll say, what's that? And I'll say, it's a gratitude moment. What do you, what do you have gratitude for? Um, helps me stay um, grounded and focused and on track of what I need to do and let some of the stress about the kind of things that, you know, I, I, I get from the people that I work with just kind of fall away. It's theirs, not mine. You know, it's like they say early in therapy, you know, as a trainer, keep the distress with the client. That's well, easier said than done. 
Um, but it's also appreciating, you know, that appreciating, you know, what I have versus, you know, what I don't have. So I think the idea about reflective practice is a really kind of strong measure and some level of, of daily gratitude check. That's excellent. That's, that's excellent. I like that. Uh, especially that you remind yourself to, to have the gratitude. I, I, I like that. Nice. So today it's going to be Steve Maletto, Tim Moss, and Mary. Nice. <laughs> I like that. Very cool. Very cool. Nice. All right. Last question. I like to ask my guests this. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if you were given a chance to say thank you? Well, Steve, you're going to love this because you will actually know um, as a product of the um, East Lawrence High School school system. Um, I had a teacher in the seventh grade whose name was uh, Deborah Bush. Um, and she was very inspirational in my life. She, um, I, I guess, is the probably, in my mind, the first person that really saw my true potential when I didn't see it in myself. And she was very good about making that known to me is that I see the part you try to hide um, in terms of just the academic piece, in terms of the, the insight piece. Um, and she kind of pushed that. Um, and so uh, I happened, I, when I wrote my first book, um, Horace set something up in Dublin where I went and did a lecture at East Lawrence. I did something for Dublin Junior and Dublin High School. And I just happened to be, and I used the same format. And so I'm at East Lawrence. I'm thinking uh, Deborah is retired at this point. So I make this comment about, you know, there's a teacher that was so pivotal and very um, powerful in my life that it was palpable. And I said, her name is Deborah Bush. She probably is no longer in the school system. She's probably retired. And she stood up and said, I'm still here. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> That's cool. So, so for me, it's kind of, there's a couple um, that are there. Um, one of them is, um, her, her name is Bonnie Wassum. Um, so her name is Bolson now, but she was a English teacher, I want to say in the eighth grade. And her focus on um, English and literature um, was, was just extraordinary. Um, I wrote her a message. She just recently had an 80th birthday. Um, and I, and I wrote her a message and she had, she had sent back a note, uh, that was kind of a scolding note. I got in trouble in class cause I was slipping a note underneath the wall to the, my neighbor kind of a thing. And she remembered that. And, and so she's one, and it was kind of just the, the role that English has in, in terms of literature and writing. Uh, and speaking, that kind of thing. So there was there. And then fast forward to college, you know, I'm, I'm at a meeting with um, Dr. Saul Feldman and Robert Condon, and they were um, sociology professors. And they asked me, which I think was kind of a reflective question. And the, the question was, you know, when you get into mental health practice, um, one of the most important things you're going to want to do is to put yourself out of business. And I thought, what? You know, why would I want to, what? And they're looking at me kind of like the smile you have on your face. Um, and I said, so what, what do you mean put myself out of practice? Isn't the whole idea that you get into private practice or some kind of practice and you make a lot of money. So you have a good quality of life and things like, and they're looking at me like he doesn't get it yet. Does he, you know, and I'm supposed to be a smart student. And finally it was like, boing, the light went on. And, and then we had a laugh and the whole idea was that if you can live a life in such a way that people don't need you in mental health, then you've been successful. And so working with veterans and first responders and teachers and anyone, I don't want money to be in the way. 
Um, but if there's such a way that we can have an impact so that people don't need us, yay. That is excellent, excellent. Uh, <laughs> Tim and Bill, it was awesome talking with you both. Thank you for writing Complexities and Challenges, Clinical Perspectives in Combat Veteran Treatment, and the Unique Needs of Military and Veteran Families. It is a powerful book that shares the challenges associated with returning veterans and, and methods of addressing what appears in their lives. It is so much needed, and I can't thank you enough. Wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you so much. Blessings to you, too. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.